Welcome to the Oliver Bardwell podcast. Today I had the privilege of sitting down with a man who is not just a presidential candidate, but a symbol of hope, unity, and faith for many. Fresh off the stage from the Iowa Faith and Freedom event in Des Moines, where he shared his vision for America, Ryan Binkley joined me for an intimate conversation. Ryan's warmth, kindness, and accessibility made it feel less like an interview and more like a chat between old friends. As we searched for a quiet spot, we stumbled upon a unique space in the loft of his hotel's lobby, setting the perfect ambiance for our deep dive. In this episode, we explore not just the policies and politics, but the man behind the mission. Join me as we journey into the mind and heart of Ryan Binkley. And if you find our conversation enlightening, please subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay updated with more insightful interviews. And of course, you can listen on Spotify, iTunes, and various other platforms. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Oliver. It's great to be with you today. Well, you know, it was great seeing you last night, too, and you did such an awesome job at the Faith and Freedom event. Well, thank you very much. It's always good to be back in Iowa. It's great to be at the event and really see so many people talk about issues that are so important to what we need right now in America. You know, our freedom, faith, all of it's broken. We need more both of those. Uh, we're seeing our freedoms getting tra- trounced upon right now. Um, we need more faith. You know, our country's broken. So it's good to hear everybody talk about it, see people pray. It's a powerful time. You know, undoubtedly, this is an incredibly challenging journey for you. And I just, I I have to wonder what inspired you to run for the highest office in the United States? And how do you think you can bring your values to the table? What, What do you bring to the table that other candidates don't? Yeah. You know, I get this question a lot, you know, Ryan, why, who are you, first of all, and why, why are you running? You know, I am a CEO of an investment bank I co-founded 20 years ago. We mainly do middle market mergers and acquisitions, helping mid-sized companies sell, merge with other companies. And we do consulting, software engineering. We have about 400 employees. Um, As you know, I'm a pastor also. So my wife and I, we started a church 10 years ago. We've been in young adult ministry way before then. I see our country, uh, I kind of have a deep understanding of where it is financially, uh, the economy, the debt we have. Uh, if I could paint the picture, you know, the snowball of debt that's 32 trillion, Ollie, in eight years, going to be 50 trillion, 14% of our budget's going to be interest payments. We have zero money in the bank. So we have to borrow money in our kids' credit cards to make the interest payment. This, this is set up like a perfect storm. And now the Fed's raising rates. I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, I'm a business leader, I'm a dad. I want our kids, I want your kids, my, our grandkids one day to be able to have the future, the opportunity we had. And right now, what it feels like to me, all the politicians, Republicans included, it's like that scene on the Titanic. You remember that scene when it's going down and everybody's got the violins out and they're still playing. They're like, keep playing the music. It's going to be okay. Let's calm everybody. You know, when I see our credit rating go down, I see inflation as high as it is, and I see us not doing anything different to solve the budget, to solve health care, to solve the border. We're just talking. Uh, I, I see this is why I'm running. And I'm sharing with America, we've got to wake up to this moment. We have to stop doing the same old thing. Otherwise, we're going to lose. If we don't win the next generation, 70% of them are voting for college students. So, uh, excuse me, are voting for Democrat Party. We've, we've got to seize this moment. This is not a moment just to, it's not a normal election that way. That's why I'm running. 
So, and, you know, you've shared your background and influence with your family. You were just listening to your wife um, live give the sermon at your church yeah. in Texas, right? Yeah. Just before we were getting set up, Ryan was listening to his wife give the sermon. It was, it was pretty amazing. How do you think your upbringing and your family experiences shape your approach to leadership and will shape your approach to policy decisions? You know, as, as I, people get to know me a little bit, you know, I, I started off in business out of college, 1990, University of Texas, uh, big corporate America, Procter & Gamble, Boston Scientific, two big companies right away. My, my vision was, hey, let's, let's succeed in business. You know, that was my path. And then I went on a mission trip in 1995 to Guatemala, uh, 27, 28 years old. And I thought, and then I felt a call to ministry, like out of the blue, something shifted in my life. And then I had this kind of deep, deep encounter with God where I really wanted to do whatever he wanted me to do. And I felt like it was pastoring his people and Ellie and I were dating. We prepared for that. And then we got married in 1999. We both came on staff, quit corporate America, came on staff at our church to do urban ministry in downtown Atlanta, to do young adult ministry. Um, we were doing school assemblies, missions, having the time of our life. And then a tragedy hit my home. Um, my brother was running a business with my dad. He was two years older than me. <clears throat> my best friend, I mean, best man at my wedding. And he was killed by a drunk driver on Martin Luther King Day, 2001. And, you know, I never thought I'd be in business again back then. I, I thought, you know, God, you called me to ministry. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I can say it this way. You know, I, I was kind of taken up to heaven in a dream. And God showed me a businessman in heaven. And he began talking to me and showed me what an honor it was to do business and serve people. And he just spoke to me, said, this is part of your calling, part of your inheritance, part go in this way. You'll still do ministry as well. And uh, just go. And so since then, wow. you know, the leadership of his, his voice in my life. And, and then later on, those 10 years later, we just served in our church. But he spoke to me at the same time, you know, start a church. Here's what you want you to call it. Here's the city. He gave me the name. And, and then so we've led our life by that way. I'm in this journey because that same, you know, message has been coming to my heart about our nation, that it's in trouble. More so than I can even communicate. Something's going on. I think we all know it. We can't put our finger on it. So the more I talk to people, they go, mm, you're right. Something's right, going on. Right. And I think you and I know this. There's, and I think people are, so the Lord's put a message into me that we have to fix something financially. And we are, we are at a place we're so divided. I, if we, you know, Abraham, let me, let me slow you down just a yeah. minute. So obviously your faith has been a huge part yeah. of what you're doing right now. You mentioned two times that God spoke to you. And the first time you said you had this deep encounter with God when you and your wife were getting married, when you're a businessman, and then you made this change, this shift to the ministry. What was that deep encounter? Is that okay if I ask you? Yeah. You know, the big thing to go into ministry, you know, he began just speaking to me. Now, now there's several big encounters. So if I just took one, right. I, you know, <laughs> if I took one, you know, I'm driving in my car. And then this was a few years before then. So... You know, I'm driving in my car. I, I gave my life to God, um, 1992. Two years later, you know, I'm struggling. I'm just, a, you know, but for me, that means I'm living for him now. And I um, made a decision to quit drinking, quit doing whatever I was doing. I find myself in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going to a sports bar to eat a, eat a fish sandwich and a non, drink a non-alcoholic beer and watch the Braves in the mid-90s play awesome baseball, which was huge back then. 
And I get in the car, Oliver, and all of a sudden, just, all I can just say is God visits me in my car. I, I can't explain it any other way than that. And, and what did that look like and feel like? Well, I heard him say something to me. And what he said was the words come. And he said it twice, real loud. And it came out, you know. And so I, I was startled so much that I left the parking lot, never went in there, went home, um, cleaned up my apartment, pulled out my Bible. I had a daily Bible with 365 daily readings. You know, the one-year Bible. Have you ever seen those? Yeah, yeah. And so I happened to be on day 365. It was in the middle of wow. August. It was in the middle of August. So it took me a year and a half to read it. But I was on the last day's reading. And in Revelation 22, it said this. And the spirit and the bride say, in quotations, come. And let him who hears say, come and drink of the water of life freely. Wow. And so I had this moment where, you know, he spoke to me. And at that time, I'd never really, I couldn't honestly say I heard him speak to me before. But I knew it was an invitation to come up higher, to leave this life I was living He's got more for me. And all I, all I can say is at that point in my life, I thought, who is this God that would bother talking to me? Out of billions of people on earth, why would he talk to me? And I wanted to get to know him. And that's kind of what started. So as you've um, evolved in your relationship with God and you know worked more towards your ministry, do you have more of those conversations and encounters. I just remember my mom, when I was a kid, always saying she had a running conversation with God all day long. Yes. Like, I mean, talking to him in the back of her mind, you know, saying, Hey God, take this off off my plate, you know, or help me with this or. Yeah. Yeah. So I've learned to do that over time. You know, you know, we, I really feel this way. You know, we can be as close to God as we want to be. And the Bible says in the book of James that if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. So I've always likened that to this, you know, collision moment. You know, I take a step closer to God. He takes a step closer to me. I take him a step closer. He takes, and eventually a collision will take place. The more often you step closer, the more often that collision takes place. It's just. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, you know, that's, that's what I try to live. And I, of course, you know, I need to draw in more all the time as, as we all do. But so fast forward 20, 30 years later, you get the call to run for president. Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. Um, there, this, is, this is, you know, we could talk hours. Right. And we can't offline. But I got in, all day. But at the, end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, I'm running my company. I am busy. You know, business is growing. We've got five kids. You know, we're running life. We're pastoring a church. And in 2015, you know, right out of nowhere, I have a dream in the middle of the night that I ran for office of presidency. And... Um, and one. And then I, I had another dream that night that um, I was telling a friend about that dream. I was like, man, what? this is a crazy dream I just had. But it was in another dream. But I ran for a presidency, and I just thought it was really weird. And then I had a third dream that night that I shot a hole in one in golf. <laughs> now, I'm a golfer, so I tell people, all three of these are very important dreams. <laughs> I don't want to categorize them, which prioritize. But I did shoot a hole in one a few years ago. Did you? So, you know, I, I actually discounted that dream. I didn't think much about it. I. I, I wrote in my journal, God, is this symbolic? Is this, you know, because a lot of things are symbolic. You're, you know, you just, and I thought that. But then about a, 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 six months, a year later, I had another one. And Oliver, they just kept coming in different ways. And then other people. And then it just began to confirm. If you would have asked me three years ago, Brian, would you ever run for president? I would have said, abs- I would have known absolutely yes. Sometime in my life, I will. But it was about two and a half, three years ago that I knew it was 2024. Interesting. 
tell us a little bit about your family and what you, you talked about some of your mission trips and you adopted um, a child from South Korea. Yeah. You know, how does that, all of that affect your perspective and your policies around immigration and adoption and um, family values? Yeah. So my wife, Ellie, who's preaching today, she is a first generation immigrant from South Korea. And so she came here when she was seven or eight years old in the early 70s. Her dad was a, an interpreter for General Trudeau in the Korean conflict. And so he had an opportunity because he served as a liaison with the U.S. Army to apply for uh, to come here to America. He had to wait 15 years in Japan and Korea. And then they had the opportunity to come. And then they had Ellie got pregnant unexpected late. And so they left Ellie there with her grandmother, which is very hard for them to do. But they were immigrating here. Yeah, they had two older sons and it was, they knew it was going to be entrepreneurship survival and thought it'd be really difficult with an infant. And so it was not necessarily unusual in their custom at that time to do that. But uh, eventually her grandmother passed away. And so Ellie came here when she was eight, speaking Korean, never met her mother before then. And so um, their journey as an immigrant, uh, they started off in small retail stores in downtown Atlanta, um, burger shops to wig shops, and eventually became successful entrepreneurs. And um, it's an amazing 50-year story of success, you know, one of those things. But anyway, we're talking about how does that How does that story affect the way you view the border issues yeah. and immigration in general? Well, so, you know, immigration is two things in our country right now. Right now, the attention is on the illegal immigration. So, you know, we've got a huge problem with that. Uh, we need to stop that. There's some, we could talk for, you know, days about that. But this is a... There's a there's a legal immigration problem as well. You know, people that are, want to be citizens here do it the right way, do it legal way, and so at the end of the day, you know, my I see everybody's God's kids. I see our country that needs to be secure. I see our border that needs to be secure. We have human trafficking. We have drugs. We have to stop this. We have to be a secure nation. So we put together a plan that does that. It's a bipartisan plan, really, uh, that secures the border from coast to coast. I don't think Republicans can do it on their own. I don't think um, we can put the military there. I might do that short term, but that's not a long term solution. I mean, as soon as a Democrat's in office, that military has gone. And so all the problems we worked hard to solve will be right back here. So I'm more of a permanent strategy person. I'm not running to just do something for six months or a year or four years. I really think we need a permanent, permanent change on the border. So now when it comes, though, to looking at people, um, you know, if they've been here illegally, they crossed illegally, you know, just like if you and I committed a crime, you know, we'd pay a fine or go to jail. So we have to figure out who needs to go to jail and who needs to pay a fine. Some people were brought over here when they were young, 20 or 30 years ago, now own homes and businesses. Maybe they should pay a fine. Some people that came here illegally, you know, in the last five years, Oliver, maybe they should go to jail in the sense of be kicked out of the country. There's a balance somewhere. I really feel like we have to see people. We have to do what's right for the country obey our laws, enforce our laws, but also see people, if I can say it that way. Yeah. You can. And you've emphasized, I kind of looked through your plan this morning on your website. You lay it out pretty well in detail. And you've emph emphasized the importance of addressing the root causes of migration to central, or from Central America. Can you elaborate on how you'll handle and implement, implement and tackle like poverty, violence, and other issues in that region? You know, cause it. you know, first of all, I'm going to be focused right here on America. You know, the poverty crime issues here are going to be my first and foremost priority. So I think those will happen over time when our strength and, and we get we solve our economic problems here, which is a huge part of our platform. When we do that, 
we'll be able to influence other nations more. Right now, we're at the backseat. We're borrowing money today just to make things work here. Our cities, I'm looking at buildings right even here. Many of them are downtown buildings. They're half full all throughout downtown Dallas where I live. Corporate offices are half full. We've got some troubles coming here. It's not going to be my main focus on economics of Latin America. Right, you know, right. But, but that said, the stronger we are, the greater influence we have. We need to be this shining lamp of freedom here, freedom in the economy, freedom of business, freedom of press. And when we are, we'll be able to influence the globe in a much stronger way. As far as leadership goes, in your vision for the country, you talk about returning to core values. Could you explain what these core values are and how they would help guide your decision-making as president? You know, like in my company, I've got core values. You know, every company has them usually, so we have them. They're the golden rule for us, unity, integrity, diligence, and excellence. And they're in the acronym of GUIDE. And so I kind of tell our, our company, hey, these are here to guide us when you don't know what to do. They're here to be like, this is who we are. Now, I got started these 20 years ago because of a scripture in Psalm 78, 72 that says, King David led Israel by the integrity of his heart and the skill of his hand. So my first two were integrity and, and wisdom or excellence. You know, he, he led that way with excellence or skill, and he also led with integrity. I think we have to get back to that in our country. I don't think we have core values that anybody knows. I, you know, these, this is the, the, I would call it the true north of our compass, how, what guides you? <laughs> How are we doing? What is our true north of the FBI? What is DC, right. of Congress, of the Senate, of the, of the President of the United States? Do we have core values there that anybody can see? I think we've lost our true north. So when I look at this and I go, what, what is our nation's true north? Well, you know, I look at our country as a start off, it had this motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Look at the big changes in our nation. There were sacrifices. There was love of country. There was the ability to go up against the greatest enemy in the world at that time, Great you know, Britain, to, to become a nation. Look at Lincoln. He, he was fighting against the division to become one nation. You know, how important it was. You know, so at key moments, we have to remember that we are one nation. I think we, that's one of them. The other is came later on, was in God we trust, you know, in our coins, <laughs> our dollar bill, currency. I think we got to get back to trusting in God and it's okay to talk about that. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean you have to have my exact same faith. It just means that to me, God is caring for us. He loves us. He sees us and we have to look to him. And, and then when I say look to him, I'm saying, follow me as I just say this, let's love each other. Let's care for each other. Let's see each other. Let's be a nation that sees downtown Des Moines, the hurting in it and do something about it. Not just drive by. And, you know, you talk a lot about unity and I think that's one thing that people love about you and your campaign is that unity aspect. And you don't hear about that much. It's kind of an us versus them. And we talk about how polarized people are and how divisive. How would you bring about that unity between the parties? You know, first of all, we have to unite our party. Our party's very broken. So, you know, I've been to 65 counties here in Iowa. I've all over, you know, we got half of our party that's really hurt. You know, going go look back what's happened to Trump. The other half of the party is ready to move forward in another way. We have, to, we have to unify our party first, and I think that'll happen here over the next six months. After that, you know, our country, how are we going to pass legislation when right now the goal of the Democratic Party is to see the Republican Party fail? The goal of the Republican Party is to see Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, fail. Nobody's really focused on what it takes for America to succeed. So what I would do as president, first of all, speak to this. You know, Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus when he said, a house divided cannot stand. 
we have to tell America the future of us keeping on this path is destruction. We can't keep on this type of division, but let's focus on a few things that impact us all. Immigration, the border, security, securing. That's everybody. That's not a Democratic Republican issue. Fentanyl is killing 100,000 people this year. Is that a Republican or Democratic issue? No, that's an American issue. Let's, well, let's work on some things that we share. I will speak to it. I'll find some things like healthcare inflation, the inflation we're all having today. I mean, people are spending $1,000 more a month in inflation and rent and cars and fuel and food. Once we do this together, we'll get a couple wins under our belt, and that's how I unify the country. And when you, you know, one of the divisive um, issues is the, the culture of life you talk about, or you're bringing a culture of life to that pro-life versus pro-choice issue. You've expressed your pro-life stance and commitment to building that culture of life. How do you intend to engage with diverse perspectives on abortion and promote a culture that respects the sanctity of life? You know, I think this is one of the things when I, I talk about our grand old party, you know, our grand old party, the GOP, you know, we're a little bit old in our thinking about how we communicate our message. We're a little bit old in our messages even. Now, I love our message, but we're not really good at communicating how much we care for other people. You know, if you go to downtown Dallas or Des Moines, you know, we hit the hurting areas and we ask them, what party's at the table with you, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? They're going to say the Democratic Party. Uh, if you ask immigrants, the hurting, who's at the table with you, Republicans or Democrats? We're not really good messengers. I think in the area of women and this issue of abortion and the, the, what we feel about pro-life and caring, we can show that we care more about a woman in a moment of crisis, usually a young woman in their late teens or early 20s, unplanned pregnancy. Wow, distressful. Can you imagine the most distressful time? Usually not a mom or dad there, usually not a husband or father there, usually not even a friend there, and now they're alone trying to make a decision, hit with financial thoughts, you know, emotional thoughts, their whole plan of their life. Meanwhile, where's the husband or where's the, where's the father? out doing whatever he's doing, no responsibility. This is what we have to change. We've got to communicate that we care, that we're going to be financially there for you. We're going to help you navigate this time. We need to communicate to men, be responsible. We've got to, we've got to start a culture of life, movement, of adoption, caring for foster kids more. Many of them are aging out. You know, if foster kids age out, many of them are going homeless and they end up in, you know, the system, so to speak. We have to give people a pathway for life. I think when we start showing that, we begin to change people's views. And, you know, you've heard this saying, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. We've got to show the people that we care. And when we do that, we'll shift the culture of life. Then I think we'll be ready for some sort of national approach to this. And you talked, you talked a lot about getting young people involved in kind of this movement of um, volunteerism, of helping with education, helping with these issues. How, how does that look or how do you bring that about? Yeah, well, we just look at the problems of the day. You know, I think it's kind of one of these things like we, you and I have to step back and this is what I'm asking the Republican Party to do. Do you really think we're doing the right thing? Are we, we're running with the same playbook, but we only won 46% of the vote for two elections in a row. That's not enough. And, and the Democrats won 46 of our biggest cities. Are you telling me that Republican Party is going to abandon the most influential cultural centers of America? We need to dive into there. So how do we do that? Well, I mean, I'm looking at it like, man, there's a lot of people struggling. What's our message to the poor? What is our message? Our message is good luck. 
You can, you know, and it seems, I'm talking about diving in there, training, volunteering, education, job training. Let's, let's get involved. It seems like we sometimes abandon those areas where we know it's more blue or we feel like the left is kind of taken over. And I think it's a detriment to our party and to our, our people because we do have, we do have, I feel like their best interest is mine. We want to help, but we have to, like you said, somehow be engaged and be engaged even if we're not going to win the votes. Exactly. You know? What's our motive? Right. So, you know, Republicans all over I know are some of the most generous people. I mean, so I know many that are Christians and they love God. They love people. They're Republicans, many. And I'm not saying Democrats aren't. I'm just saying I know a lot of And as individuals, we're incredibly generous. We give to churches, homeless situations, shelters, programs, you know. And But as a party... We don't really speak to the issue. So what I'm talking about is not a big government movement, but there's leadership you can offer as president. And I will not just legislation about how, how do we do this one thing? Own our cities, love people more. You know, Jesus never said hire the government. By the way, when you create these big cities, hire the government to take care of your neighborhood. <laughs> he said, you love your neighbor. So we have to remember the message and that's you and I being down there in their life. And this is what they're going to see. Man, this guy named Oliver helped me. I don't know what party he was with. He never talked about it, but it wasn't the government. And that's the way it should be. I mean, with everything, um, we, we need to reach out. We need to learn how to have those conversations, whether it's about identity politics, whether it's about uh, pro-life issues or poverty. Um, I think it's people before politics. And if, if they see that, then they'll understand, okay, the, you know, there's not this, there's not the division we think there is. And when I meet people from quote unquote, the other side at that level, we always come away thinking, wow, I, I understand them better. And I agree with more. I, I, I agree more with them. We have more in agreement than I thought we would. You're absolutely right. And you know, young people are going to be the same. So young people have this filter. I call it the, I mean, they can spot a hypocrite a mile away. You know, you and I, we've gotten used to the, the jaded politics of life you know, when somebody lies a little bit, we're like, well, you know, they lie a little bit, <laughs> you, know, right. you know, it's just who they are, you know, or they say this or they say that we know they don't really mean it. Young people go, Hmm. See, if a young person doesn't see that a parent is transparent or authentic with them, they're not going to follow their faith when they go to college. Ellie and I did a uh, young adult ministry for 17 years. We saw this. If, if the, if the kids drifted and you know what? Our kids are drifting Republican families. They're like, I talk to people all the time. They're like, man, my kid went to college and all of a sudden they got a new religion or they got no religion. And then they got, you know, now they're Democrats for goodness sake. We right, can't, <laughs> right. How many people do you know? It's like that. And they're going, what yeah. happened to them? Well, the reason is, is we didn't have true authentic moments till they wanted to follow our faith. And if they don't see that in a politician, they're not going to follow up that either. So this and is something we have to do. It is. And I'd love to speak to that a little bit because, you know, when I was young, I was more liberal, you know, and then as life, as you learn through life, you learn a little more personal responsibility. You learn maybe there's a little more behind the scenes going on that you, than what you see in the media. And there, I think you mentioned that we were talking one time and I, I think you said 70% of a certain age voted for Biden. Yes. What was that? College students. Yeah. And so how do we, how do we fix that? I mean, this is a whole group of uh, th- hundreds of thousands of kids that are graduating that are, that feel like that's the best route, social, socialized democracy or whatever, they, socialism, democratic socialism, right? Right. So I think it's the biggest opportunity in the world right now. 
Because right now, here's what's happening with college students. I mean, I'm seeing it all over. My kids just, my oldest son just graduated. So I got friends, their friends over. They're seeing delayed employment. Uh, one of his best friends graduated top business school at Texas A&M. He got a job offer. But can you start six months from now? So he didn't know what to do for six months. Uh, they're, now they're also seeing underemployment where 29% of college students are taking a job that did not require a four-year degree. Basically, they're just trying to get some work in. Uh, inflation's high. They can't get an apartment. They're not financially independent. They have to go home and live with mom and dad or they get to get four roommates and they're Ubering everywhere, can't afford a car. So this is a great opportunity to talk to college students to go, listen, see all this inflation you have? Do you know why your college costs $200,000? It's really because of our spending habits. Socialism does this. Let me be, let me tr- be transparent and tell you what a big government socialism government does. It makes inflation in your tuition go up. It makes your car payment go up. It makes your rent go up. This is what it does. They didn't teach you this in college. They didn't teach you macroeconomics, but let me share it with you. But let's do this. Let's fix it. And let's focus on the poor together. There's people that are hurting much more than you and I. Let's just start helping people. You're going to get a job, but let me show you a better way. And bringing them a Republican alternative to socialism to the table. And that's what I want to do. Share with them truth, authenticity, and let's focus on those in the greatest need because we can do that together. And they're going to come through it, but we've got to show them because we're passing this baton off to the next generation. Exactly. And, you know, when you talk about education, it makes me think about some of the challenges I've seen in the construction business are people that, you know, my HVAC guy was telling me that um, he struggles to get young men into the trades or into his trade. And, you know, having a certification, they make a lot of money and it's a, it's a nice job. You know, I, I know a young guy who came out of high school, got his journey, went through the journeyman program, owns a house, no college debt, owns a truck and he does HVAC for a living. Um, how do we get, how do we revitalize those industries and build the trades back up and technical training. Absolutely. So, you know, our vision is this. We have a program called SAVE, Serving and Volunteering in Education. It splits off an education for vocational trade education and then the volunteer movement to ask college students to help in training and education. So we're asking college students, hey, give five hours a week and help a third grader on how to read. Get, you know, one out of six in urban America are reading at the eighth grade level. And then let's, for the older kids, ninth, 10th grade, let's start them on a path for trades. So you have a vision or taught in their life, talking about their purpose. Hey, you're either going to go to a four-year college or going to go to a one or two-year college and learn a trade. You, you, one's cheaper. One's going to pay you a little bit more right away. One may pay you a little bit more longer term. Just what's your gift though? What's your passion? Because you, you can own a business when you have a trade. As soon as you know how to do it, then you don't have to work for somebody. You can actually open up a website, get marketing, teach them how to be an entrepreneur. This is the backbone of our country, you know, working for yourself and, uh, and give, in, give inspiration to people. And I think that's what we do. We need these trades. We need great skillsmen, craftsmen, you know, masons, welders. We need people that can do computer electrical work. That's Medi- in medicine as well. You don't have to get a four-year degree. Right. You need to be prepared. I was here at this hotel, not this one. I think the Fort Dodge is the Fort Dodge Hotel. Two guys were working um, the valet area, and they're great guys. And we, got, we were there for a few days. So we got to talking to them. And I was telling them they didn't go to college. And I was like, tell me about how did you, did you take a trade? And they're like, no, I didn't really like it. I'm like, where are you? You know, one's living at home. One's kind of had a, a living situation, a little unclear. And I said, you know, we just didn't, we need to prepare you better. Let's get going that we can get back into trades. You know, it's not too late. We have to, we have to get people ready out of high school, ready. What's your career? What right. path are you on? We're not giving people a path. And so, so many people are just in this loop of, 
you know, hanging out and not that they're not, they're working hard. I'm so proud of them. They were working, but we can get them on a path better than what we do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard you speak about it. You have like a seven step plan to balancing the budget. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, so this is my area of expertise as far as the economy. You know, there's no way for our kids to have a future that you and I have had up to this point without us having a stable economy. And when we look at all the debt we have, it's got a pattern to it. Dominoes fall. Next thing is inflation. When the money supply goes up from our spending, and now the banks are suffering. I was with a regional bank here just the other day talking to the president. How are you doing? One or two more interest rates. What happens to all the regional banks, smaller ones, which is 60% of our country's business, get to be very fragile. And here's why. They bought treasury bills for 15 years that are zero points and now they're five or six points i mean which would you rather own paying you five percent or zero and so they bought them at zero or one percent and now their banks are worth 80 cents on the dollar so if the fed keeps raising rates we're in trouble that means that banks could fail that means growth so we have to do this this is not like some thoughtful idea let's just do it we have to do it <laughs> we have to do it so we put together a seven-year plan to do it i'm the only republican pa- candidate that's put it in writing and how to get it done in seven years. Is it going to be easy? No, but I'm going to have to look in the camera and tell everybody we have to do this. Or you and I are going to look at our kids and go, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to go to the lake. Here's 50 trillion, 60 trillion. Uh, good luck in your gener- <laughs> generation. And we can't do that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's something that is perpetually causing issues and yeah. kind of destroying our nation. So we got to tell them why, you know, details on the plan. You know, we're going to peg our, we recommend pegging uh, social security to GDP right now. It has automatic, everything has automatic inflation risers, Medicare and Medicaid are going up too much every year. We're going to reform healthcare. We have a plan to desocialize and demonopolize healthcare. Medicare and Medicaid is, is 40% of our country's budget. Now we can, once we demonopolize it, big pharma drugs, we spend 300% more in drugs here than in Canada on all of the major ones. And so we have to stop doing this subsidizing. Once we do that, we'll, we'll have the budget and balance and uh, we can do it. How do we, how do we do that? How do we reform healthcare and get the drug costs down? I mean, we pay some of the most in the world for the most. I have a daughter with type one diabetes and insulin is incredibly expensive. Her um, gear, you know, the Dexcom is incredibly expensive and I, I don't know how, We've justified spending. I'm, didn't at one point we have our drugs produced in Puerto Rico or somewhere like that instead of China? This, it's, you know, it's, one of our greatest competitors we right. buy our, our drugs from. You know, this, this, it's, it doesn't have to do with where they're made. What it has to do with is the patents that the United States of America gives big pharma that no other nation does. So right now, when you look at patents, you know, every nation gives them 15, 20 years. What we do in America, because we just love big pharma, is we give them an extra 10 or 15 years when they do what's called patent hedges around their big drugs. So what they'll do is they'll do an upgrade to it, kind of like a model in a car. You know, hey, we got new tires, we got a little bit bigger engine on it, and now give us five more years, 10 more years. And we pat them on the back, say, yeah, good job. Meanwhile, you can buy the same drug that your daughter needs. I have a friend, we just talked about this. I got a, one of my colleagues is dual citizenship with Canada, and he's up in New York. He goes, Ryan, 25% of the cost up there, and that's what it is, by the way, 28% is the cost what they pay for what we pay for the same drugs. So we have to quit the patent extensions. That's the way we solve it. <laughs> we have to, and you know what we gotta do? Quit taking big pharma money. President Trump took three million. Joe Biden took eight or nine million. Two thirds of Congress is taking money from big pharma. This is, this is the system we're in. 
we're in a broken, corrupt system. They're buying the votes of our legislators, and you and I are paying for it. Once we stop doing this, we'll just look at Big Pharma and go, listen, figure out how to make it everybody pay the same thing. I don't care how it's done, but I'm not doing this anymore. United States of America is not going to pay three times of what Canada's paying. Amen. <laughs> it's, it seems to the average citizen, it just makes sense. Why are we paying three times as I, much? I, I, heard, uh, I heard one of the candidates, I won't say his name. He goes, well, we really enjoy the benefits of being first when these drugs come out. When the COVID vaccine came out, we got them before everybody. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, what, a week before? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just yeah. come on. I mean, I was just like, And you talk about taking money this. from big pharma. I mean, it, we lobbied and lobbied and lobbied against mandates, you know, vaccine right. mandates. And it's a challenge. I mean, you know, there's a lot of campaign contributions. There's high paid lobbyists for big pharma. Um, it's a challenge. Um, one of my colleagues, his, um, he, he knows the CEO. He went to business school with him of Moderna. They, they developed one of the early vaccines. Um, this guy's now, you know, America, by the way, paid for the research for the vaccine. So and we, they reap all the profit. <laughs> so uh, he himself is worth like three to four billion dollars in stock that their companies, their companies, billionaires. He's a billionaire now. Well, they didn't risk that money on their own. We paid for the research of that. And then they reap all the profits. And now they're wanting to come up with new vaccines. Why? Because they make they, money. They, they make a ton of money. Once we want to wake up and go, listen, we're not going to let Big Pharma run this thing show. The insurance exchanges have done the same thing. There's two or three major insurance companies here in Iowa health insurance oliver in my business i got over six thousand competitors in the how, how do we do that in the healthcare industry how do we get back to having more competition so i need to look up the name of the law but there's an old law it's like 60 years old that doesn't allow insurance companies to compete across state lines and so they have these little oligopolies i'll call them two or three major ones in every city instead of allowing them to compete as they can we have to allow more competition, price transparency when you go to the hospital. I mean, when's the last time you asked, how much does this MRI cost? How much does this x-ray cost? How much does it cost for me to be here? And they don't know. They right. can't. I go, next right. time, if you are listening, ask your doctor next time you're there, how much does this cost? They won't, they'll go, I'm not for sure. Um, why are you asking? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, they don't even know. Right, right. I was talking with somebody the other day, I think it was a supervisor from Webster County, and he's a farmer. And he said that you're the only candidate who's talked about the carbon pipeline and eminent domain. And I'm just wondering what your concerns with it are, what your take on it is. Yeah. So when I started coming to Iowa, you know, this, uh, first of all, every county, almost every single one, Ryan, what do you think about CO2 pipelines? I'm like, I don't know anything about CO2 pipeline. So, and then, then I evolved to, well, that's a state issue as president. You guys figure that out here. Then I evolved to, well, hold on. You're the 100th person that's talking to me about this. Let me really look into this. So I start diving into it and wow, you know, regardless of the relevancy issues, which are to me are there, whether it's even needed or not, the reason it's wanted is because it's a government subsidized program where Joe Biden and the inflation reduction act changed the amount of money that they were willing to pay for carbon capture from $50 per metric ton to $85 per metric ton. So now the government's saying, hey, guys, I'll give you more money if you guys can capture some of this stuff. So the only way people are making money, it's not because there's a there's a public. I believe I'm a free market person. <laughs> I like if there's a free market for carbon capture. Fine. There's not. You know what the market is? The U.S. government giving them money for it. I got a problem with that. Number two, big problem. It's an invasion of our Fifth Amendment. In the Fifth Amendment, we have a right of due processes as a landowner 
to where if somebody wants our land, we get due process and it's for public use. These are privately owned pipelines that, that BlackRock owns, that I think even some of the Saudis own one of these things in partial ownership. They're owning this thing. This, is not, this isn't like utilities of natural gas coming to downtown Des Moines or bringing in water in for the city for public use. This is a private profit, and eminent domain should never be enforced. And I'm looking at this going, I cannot believe more people aren't going, what in the world's happening? And you know what, you know what it is? Not everybody's a landowner. And then two, it's not like going through everybody's land. So sometimes when it doesn't affect you personally, you just kind of go, oh, it's not my problem. Oh my gosh. This could set a precedent. Private profit on eminent domain use. I don't want to see a precedent set for you and I, no matter what we own, where we own, because the government's coming after us more. And this is, I'm afraid of it and I don't like it. How would you remedy that as president? I would stop it. First of all, get rid of, they don't want me to be president. I mean, because I'm going to get rid of the subsidy for one thing. I do not like creating industries with government taxpayer money. Right. So, so I'm going to try. Yeah, it doesn't to, make any sense. I mean, I'm going to get rid of the $85. I mean, I'm no. Right. <laughs> I mean, we're broke. What are we doing paying money for you know, tax subsidies on this? We have no money in the country. We're one and a half, two trillion dollars broke every year in debt. And we're going to give subsidies for carbon capture when all it is is CO2 that the plants need. And so, you know, but again, if you're a farmer and you took it, I'll say this. I'm okay with if you take it. Just don't make somebody else take it. What does the opposition say is the benefit of these carbon pipelines? Well, you know, so I have them calling me now. <laughs> they want to talk to <laughs> They're me. They're saying, Ryan, Ryan, come on. You don't know what you're... you're yeah, you're, <laughs> let me show you the light. And I'm like, ah, oh, where, where have you been? I've been here for five months. And now they want to talk to me. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. But uh, anyway, so, you know... Uh, you know, in general, they're like, Ryan, progress. This is progress. Progress isn't easy. I'm like, okay, I get it. But, you know, <laughs> where is the relevancy? Show me the, show me the research that says this, this CO2 from ethanol is, is damaging this earth. I'm not seeing dead animals lay on the side of the road. I'm not seeing, <laughs> I'm not seeing something that's really tragic here. Um, this is a government money thing. Follow the money. You follow where it goes. And this has really been, in Iowa, it's been a bipartisan issue. There's there's been a lot of people from both parties coming together in opposition. Yeah. I think I read where even the far left liberals are finally joining with some of the right people on this one, you know. So, listen. That's again, an interesting again, rally, isn't it? Again, you know, I I if you if you as a landowner want to want to host a, a circus on your land, I don't care. Uh if you want to give up farming altogether and and ride go-karts, who cares? But that should be your choice. That's great. <laughs> so, how do you relax at the end of a long day of campaigning? <laughs> well, you know, we're on a long run. So we're day seven now in a row. Started off in New Hampshire this week, and then we've been all over the last three or four days. And I got one more meeting tonight, then we're flying home late tonight. So I haven't kind of unwound yet. So lots of coffee. I tell people that some of these road <laughs> trips are crazy because I'm like, not only I'm drinking coffee, now I start eating bad. I mean, we're drinking, we're putting down muffins, anything to get sugar in your system. So it's, it's been tough. So, but this next week, I basically get a few days off, three or four days. And so we're doing an executive retreat up in Montana. I'm going to be with my wife. I'm going to relax. I'm going to play some golf and I'm going to unwind for a few days. So, so your, your idea of a vacation is an executive retreat. <laughs> So what are you doing in between relaxing and unwinding? Well, the good thing with my executives, they're my friends. And so, you know, we all, we're, we do life together. So it'll be a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today. And it's always a pleasure. I mean, 
hopefully I can get down to Texas and visit you there and, and do a follow-up interview in a couple months and see how it's going. That for would you. be really great. You know, our goals are to get to this next debate. We recognize, you know, we almost made the first one. I think I don't think I told you we were five votes away. Oh from no, New Hampshire, five votes away, in, or polling numbers in in New Hampshire, and five people away in one national poll as well. We we the margin of error on these polls is like five percent, you know, and we lost by you know a tenth of one percent. I don't know what it was, wow. but it's something nutty. And uh, but we we need to we need polling. So if you like the message, if you want to see a new message for the Republican Party. I want everybody to know I respect Donald Trump in a lot of ways. I mean, he did some good things. Uh, I'm not one of those guys that hates him. You know, half of the people running for president can't stand him. The other half are almost surrogates for him. I'm kind of neither. (laughs) You know, I appreciate so many things he did. But I look at our country and go, wow, I see something. I see it's time for the party to grow. I see us where we need to advance our party. We need to connect to urban America. We need to connect to college students. We need to bring real wisdom to health care. We have to balance our budget. We have to get banking right. When we're strong nationally, we'll be strong internationally. Right now, Xi Jinping, China, they're not paying attention to us today. So I'm, I'm asking the Republican Party to look forward. Think about the future. How are we going to handle our debt? How are we going to handle this? I will lead as president to save us economically, first and foremost, and to really to save us culturally. Because when we get unified, we can solve some of these bigger problems. And... Um, and uh, consider polling for us, you know, in order to get there, I'm going to need people to say, you know what? I'm thinking Ryan Binkley. And that's, and as you, as you envision the way forward, how do you see it unraveling and unfolding? You know, we are, we are here to stay, Oliver. I think some people are going to fall out here in the next couple of months, you know, different people run for president for different reasons. Uh, some to kind of get a name for themselves. You know how that goes and politics keep the brand out there. They've ran several times and, and that, that happens, and I'm not saying that all of them aren't genuine, um, but, you know, that just happens. Or they have a message to share. I feel called to. I, I, regardless of I'm, I'm on the, the stage or not, I'm going to be sharing with Iowa, sharing with New Hampshire. I'm a grassroots candidate. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a 40-year-old career politician. People don't know my name yet as much. But I, they're listening to what I'm saying. And the more they listen, the more people are going, well, you know, Ryan, I like what you're saying. And then, you know, can you get there? And I, I can get there if you'll pull for me. If you'll think about getting us there, we can get the message out more. But we're, we're, we're getting some traction. We got all the donors for the next one or two debates. We got 60, over 65,000 donors now, something like that. So we're, That's amazing. So we have a lot happening. Um, and so I'm going to keep shouting it. So you just need the polling numbers. That's and, it. And honestly, I haven't, I haven't talked to somebody who's met you that doesn't think you're a great guy. Seriously. Well, thank you. Everybody's like, he's the nicest candidate, <laughs> the most genuine and love loving candidate. Well, then, then vote for me. Caucus <laughs> for me. Right, Let's right. go. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I love Iowa, but it's been like, I'm like, man, I've poured my heart out here. Come on, Iowa. Let's go. So uh, get our name on the polls. Tell them you're voting for me. And uh, let's see some change in our country. All right, brother. Well, Thanks for joining us today. And, it's always great to and see And we'll you. just keep checking in with you. And, right. and God bless you. And we hope, we wish you well. Thank you. Awesome. All right. All right. Thank you, Oliver. Yep. Thank you. Good stuff. <laughs>